So here we are, episode two. Thank you so much for coming back and checking it out. I really hope you enjoy this. I was so excited to finally get on this topic. Um, I say that so <laughs> dramatically, but yeah, I was so excited to get onto this. Um, I was looking at all sorts of stuff. I looked at so many books and everything and found a lot on like American, African, Australian and this is why I'm kind of like calling this episode the three A's of colonialism. There will be the Caribbean as well so AAA and C. Uh, I was really on top of this episode as well. I've got into it straight away. I thought I was going to be a lot earlier but now I'm late because I had computer problems. So that's the drawbacks of technological advancements I guess. But it's history. Uh, I've discussed it and it's history. You know, history podcast. Yeah. Um, So as I said in the previous episode, this is the whole reason why I started this podcast because a lot of people were asking for colonial history with all their petitions and stuff and I urge you to sign these uh, because it's so important that they actually do this in schools. Um, But I felt that slavery was the better topic to start on because like it kind of feeds into this one as well but my research just took me on the slavery path first uh, and then I ended up focusing on this even though even though slavery is like gonna kind of come into this as well but the focus is colonial history so I even bought a book ages ago like even for the first podcast on American colonies um, by Alan Taylor who I'm gonna use for when I discuss America um, and that's been a really helpful book. Um, so colonial history is immensely important. Uh, it's the way we understand uh, the stronger power of taking the weaker people uh, which is actually the uh, a policy and practice that Collins actually defines. So this is that's what colon colonialism is. Um, so I also said, uh, like talked about Christopher Columbus a lot in the last episode, but he will definitely be turning up again this time round. Uh, trading and colonial history seep into one another as I've been saying so it'll all come together at least I'm hoping so. So let's get on with it. All history of colonization is important which is why I want to explore with you the antiquity way of colonization. The Phoenician, Greek and Roman civilizations absolutely dominated the colonization game of ancient history. So let's start with the Phoenicians and uh, in his article Cartwright actually talks about how the Phoenicians were trading and that's how colonization began for them. Uh, They began to colonize in 1100 BC or 10th century BC. The cities Tyre, Sidon and Byblos searched for prospective trading areas to increase their revenues. 
colonies were created across the Mediterranean and on Atlantic coasts of Europe and Africa. One of these places also involved Carthage, which even becomes an empire for itself, but more on that one later. What was obvious to historians is that they colonised purely for commercial reasons rather than for the land. Eventually, the colonies dissolved as changes occurred and territories wanted to expand themselves. The Greeks eventually became ambitious in colonising themselves. Like the Phoenicians, they also traded, especially with them being surrounded with the sea. However, they went abroad for land as well as resources. They began colonising around 900 to 700 BC as establishment of city-states and trading made it easier for them to colonise. New cities were created on the coast of the Mediterranean, like, like the Phoenicians again, across the Asian Minor on the west, North Africa, Spain, Italy and France in the 7th and 6th century BC. The Greeks, overall, formed around 500 colonies. Now, the biggest part of ancient history um, when it comes to colonisation seems to be the Romans. I found so much information on the Romans actually. Uh, they were quite big I guess because, you know, they had the empire, they were, they just dominated basically. But when it comes to the colonisation, they were actually split, so they had either Roman colonies or Latin colonies, depending on the Roman citizenship. Like, so if you were in a Roman colony, you had Roman citizenship. Now, citizenship was actually given up for land grants uh, in Latin colonies, so if you wanted to belong to the Latin colony, you gave that citizenship up. Uh, this citizenship comes from the Romans valuing money and how law was actually commercially valuable to them. Uh, McKendrick describes colonising as an old Italian practice whereby the land they conquered was theirs for the taking as was their right. With this land, they established a society on it which was well organised by the Romans. Latin colonies were first set up as a defence outside of Rome. A theory that has been discussed is that the Latins had colonies due to collating of different leagues on conquered lands to create one big one after different wars had occurred. Roman's process of colonising involved having surveyors go out to sites and lay it out whilst colonising itself was military with there being senior colonial commissioners. Romans also liked being Roman, so colonising involved Romanising with uh, architecture all being Roman itself, so we had colosseums and all, all you can think of in architecture that's Roman. Um, and yeah, if you didn't know, Romans were really big on being Roman. This, I mean, to historians that's actually quite well known, especially to ancient history uh, historians, it's quite well known, but if you didn't know, they loved being Roman. <laughs> so at the end of the Samnite War, Campania is attained by the Romans, which led to a Latin rebellion as they wanted to keep their independence, uh, which was important to them. 
Eventually the Latin War came and ended in 338 BC with the Romans suppressing the Latin Rebellion. All Latin colonies were taken by the Romans and they were given Roman citizenship. The only thing that I feel like is different with this colonising is that they took the land and established themselves but their legal rights as Latins were taken as legal status by the Romans as well. For this next part I want to like apologise for how I'm saying stuff. Yeah. I've used Siri and YouTube to try and work out how to say these so I apologise in advance to those who know these people and how to say it. I'm really sorry about the pronunciation, I'm gonna try. So remember I was talking about Carthage, do you remember that, do you remember that? You should, it was five minutes ago. Okay well, in 319-318 BC Agathocles was elected general or protector of the peace as he liked to interpret it of Syracuse in Sicily. Because of his dream of an empire, he killed the leader of this Libya colony ruled by Othellus in 308 BC. However, his expedition was prevented when the Carthaginian fleet moved in and killed his sons, according to one of my uh, well-liked writers, Chaniotis. In 306 BC, a peace treaty was signed between Carthage and Agathocles. Greek parts of Sicily were now ruled by him. Pyrrhus eventually became king of Sicily in the 3rd century BC and tried but failed to capture Carthage, leading to another peace treaty. So the Carthaginians were pretty powerful. Then we get to the Punic Wars, which occurred between 264 and 146 BC. I think it's worth noting that the Punic uh, word comes from Phoenician, which was the ethnicity of Carthaginians, and with the Romans writing history of these events, that is why they were dubbed the Punic Wars. I feel like this was maybe a very early version of racism, but that's just my interpretation like it's, it's good to know I guess they were against each other they were different ethnicities um, so I'm, I think it, it's important to mention as well because this is a, a subject that comes through in colonization to be honest so yeah it does make sense though they were they were against each other like I was saying so yeah Sicily comes into play in the first part of, as Carthage had partial rule over Sicily. This is due to the Sicilian Wars. They basically got some rule over it in the end. Anyways, Rome basically wanted it uh, all for themselves. They wanted all of it, not just the other parts that were under their rule. Eventually, Rome built a, f a fleet occurring in the naval battles and became victorious. Round 1 to Rome! 23 years later, after part 1 ended, part 2 started with the Carthaginian general Hannibal, yet no joke, that is his name, invading Italy. Rome won again, whilst Carthage lost power. 
The Punic Wars ended in part 3 in 146 BC where the Carthaginians were completely suppressed and Rome colonised all of their territory, a bit like what happened between them and the Latin League. So yeah, that's uh, all of ancient colonising for you. <laughs> Basically, it's just Roman, isn't it? I mean, come on. But yeah, ancient uh, colonisation. So, Chris Columbus, yep, him again. How could he get any worse? Well, let's start off by quoting something that he actually wrote. Um, so, on a, with his adventures to Americas, uh, he was saying how like his 50 men could easily capture the entire population uh, that was already there, and how or like even take them all to Castile. Like he he just thought he was this powerful dude and it basically like to me interpreting it shows how he thought these people were really weak like weak-minded weak in the body they did have no no power they did they did have no power they didn't have any power <laughs> my bad uh so anyway uh, the colonising first began when a ship got stuck on shore, stranding 39 crew members who stayed in Hispaniola, forming a colony and building a fort from the ship that was stranded. What adds salt to the wound is that when Columbus returned to Spain, he was given a hero's welcome from King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. They actually eventually sent him to colonise and explore further and he actually became Admiral and Governor of the new islands that he found. Um, exploitation also led him to gain one tenth of the profits from the exploitation which was actually promised to him. 17 ships 1,200 people and Columbus himself went to the West Indies to start a Spanish colony. Each person had an occupation that helped them stay independent. They also relied on trading goods and slaves for essentials. The Taino, we know, were put into slavery when Columbus came over. However, their land was also colonised by him and those he brought with him like on the ships. He captured them on his second voyage to Hispaniola in December 1494 and as Brian Cruz puts it he herded them to Isabella. So like that's basically like calling them cattle and like dehumanizing them you know herded them which is what Columbus did you know. So within 30 years, the Taino were more or less extinct because of this colonising. To summarise, Columbus was very vicious to these people, as well as Indians, and would kill many of them uh, in the name of discovery and exploitation. I don't mean to give him such a platform, but he's one of those people who played a really cruel part in colonising and slavery that this needs to be addressed in history and it needs to 
I mean, my the whole point of my podcast is to like teach you, so take a leaf out of history and just don't be this guy, you know? Just never be this guy, <laughs> okay? Okay, okay, cool. Now, because of Columbus, the Spanish had much of the islands in the Caribbean. In the 1600s, European powers, including France and England, started to colonise these areas too. Between 1624 and 1628, England colonised St Kitts, Barbados, Montserrat, Antigua and Nevis. France's colonies included Martinique and Guadeloupe. Lambert explains how they grew crops as part of their search for wealth when colonising. And we explored Saint-Dominion in the last episode. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I tried to say it. I just go with it. Uh, and we're talking about the colonising of it in this one. I'm not going to lie to you guys though. I was kind of nervous about this one because it did take me ages to say Saint-Dominion. Uh, for the first one, I still not 100% confident. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so French pirates of the 16th century, not pirates, pirates, French pirates of the 16th century established themselves on Hispaniola eventually leading to settlements forming. The Treaty of Reisweich from 1697 gave the western third of Hispaniola to France whilst the rest remained with Spain. This third would become Saint-Dominion under the French. As a prosperous possession of the French, they benefited economically from this land. Colonists enslaved black people for trading and eventually Saint-Dominion became the richest French colony. So that's colonising in the Caribbean view. So that's our C out of the way. Now on to the A's. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. Yeah, I'm alone. Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> anyway, it may be a well-known fact that Australia was colonised. Like, to some of you, uh, I remember the first time hearing about it was doing this play and we were basically the prisoners that were sent there. Anyway, I'm going to get on to that. So I'm going to explain it to you. Uh, that's what I'm here for this month, I guess. So, James Cook landed in Botany Bay at Sydney in 1770, planting the British flag. Prisoners, at first, were sent in exile to Australia as a penal uh, company? Company? Colony. Get it together, Jam. Come on. So, um, these prisoners were sent to Australia as a penal colony. Skipping ahead a bit uh, to January 1788 in New South Wales in Sydney. Here, the penal colony was located. The Charlotte, which was a ship, uh, left for Australia in 1787 and was the first fleet of prisoners to be shipped, shipped there. James Cook has stated that the land was completely empty and no one lived here. This was a lie. 
Aborigines uh, occupied the coast of Australia uh, and a glimpse as to how they actually differed from invading whites is shown in the writing of Walkin Tench at the time. He described them to live in caves that turned into warm ovens when they lit fires in them and how to them they were basically living rough, uh, to put it in like layman's terms. He also described them as, to quote, poor creatures. However, this was the Aboriginals people's culture um, being resourceful with their environment and that's how they lived. These colonies actually ended up bringing new diseases and more advanced technology like fishing nets uh, that ended up wiping out the Aborigines uh, due to sickness and hunger. Uh, they were, the whites were getting more fish, they were surviving from the diseases which as I said were new to the Aborigines so it was killing them off more or less. So more and more of the British started to arrive in Australia as well as other Europeans. Edward Gibbon Wakefield encouraged further settlers to emigrate in around the 1820s. Uh, some people sent their less intelligent family members to Australia and according to Keneally and Attar I apologise if I got your names wrong, I'm sorry. Charles Dickens actually sent his two dumbest sons, uh, sons, 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 God, two dumbest sons uh, with these people. find that quite funny. I thought I should throw that in there, but like, even, like, sending dumb people, I mean, come on, even the less wanted people were sent there, I mean, come on. The settlers didn't realise how hostile the environment was um, as they went further inland. It was more desert and lacked water and some actually couldn't even handle it mentally. To help them, they received ships carrying the necessities they needed to help the colony to actually continue. Do you think the Aborigines like just sat aside and let them live peacefully? Heck no! The Aboriginal people took cattle and killed those who like messed with their woman. As Keneally puts it lightly, I think uh, the insinuation here is that a lot worse things went on, but I'll leave that up to you to think about and make up your own interpretation there. But anyway, their fate was sealed uh, the minute these people arrived and the Aborigines were actually heading for extinction. So that was Australian colonisation for you. Uh, we're going to talk about African colonisation now. Um, and. European colonization of Africa is really big, it's a big one. So in 1483 the Portuguese land in the Kingdom of Congo, so this is different to uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it's spelt with a K as well, not a C. Um, and they actually bring Christianity with them, uh, which King Nzinga and Guru actually converts to. 380 years later, Congo had become a state of Portugal. 
They also had Morocco until the Saudis Arabic tribe removed them from Africa's west coast. The Portuguese eventually established markets along the Zambezi River, which helped them gain political and military control over Mutapa, as told by the South African History Online. So, in 1628, the leadership in Mutapa was replaced and exports were under their full control, under the full control of the Portuguese. They also destroyed the Mawamutapa system of government and in 1667 it went into serious decline. A shipwreck, much like the one I discussed in a bit about Columbus, uh, of the New Harlem in 1647 saw Dutch people stranded and also using the shipwreck to build forts too. They were eventually rescued and saved and they actually told the Dutch East India Company how they should start trading from where they'd, they'd been stranded. In 1652 they arrived at Table Bay or Tafel Bay in Dutch on the 6th of April. The Dutch colonised the Cape mainly for the purposes of farming, conquering and breeding. Did I say farmering? I meant farming. Eventually the Europeans began to dominate southern Africa and the Coesan Ramarini people. Uh, farmer colonists settled in Rondebosch which they found much less windy and had nicer waters. Natives actually used to steal the cattle from the farmers so eventually they ended up building fences to try and prevent this from happening. Uh, schools were also built to teach the white children of the colonists. Overall, by 1658, the Cape Colony had 162 people, which included slaves. The Oyo Empire in Nigeria existed for around 200 years before Britain came over and made it a protectorate in 1888, so they had full control over it, over Nigeria. Going back nine years to 1879 when the United African Company of Nigeria, I think there is a couple so I had to specify on this one that it was of Nigeria, uh, was created as a trading company. I thought this was important to mention because I'll be mentioning them a lot, it's, it's all related okay? okay. In the 1880s, four companies merged and formed the Royal Niger Company because they were a trading company working on the River Niger, uh, to put it very simply. The charter was actually revoked and eventually the British government ended up owning it all, all of their territories. In the Niger Delta, between 1882 and 1897, the United Africa Company of Nigeria's British forces, as well as the Lagos government, went against uh, African forces. Major opposition was finally oppressed in 1897 in the south. Uh, now some of this information that I got that really helped me to understand the Nigerian colonisation came from home team history and if you want to know a little bit more about this particular place like, like Nigeria and Ghana, check him out. So good. Uh, so, Ezio Giddy explains how Nigeria's well-working social, economic and political systems was heavily disrupted when the British 
came to colonize. They just kicked down a perfectly made sandcastle for lack of a better for, uh, metaphor. Lack of a better metaphor. Jesus. As mentioned, the British began colonising in 1888 and was ultimately completed in 1914 by the British government themselves. Whilst all this was happening in Nigeria, at the same time, Kenya was being colonised. On the 6th of September 1888, Queen Victoria granted a charter meaning the British East African Company had full authority issued to them so colonising could begin. The British government took over eventually and taxed those who owned huts um, in around 1902. They lacked power compared to the Indians, uh, the rupee was Kenya's currency at the time. To gain more power, they believed taxing would help them heighten it. Uh, you want to know what slavery with extra steps actually is? Well, most of the time, if taxes weren't paid, they had to pay fines, which they also couldn't always pay. To make up for this, they were made into cheap labour or, more, more blatantly put, slaves. Now this was usually the native Kenyans purely because their wages would be paid by someone else who had come into the land and is now making them work for what is theirs in the first place. It's hard to kind of put it into your mind nowadays because that's exactly what we do now. But let me put it into perspective with a well known story, Cinderella. These wicked people had come into her home, taken over and made her work so she can keep living in her own home to put it like very briefly uh, she was their slave wasn't she so that's what's happening here basically uh, so my interpretation from this is they were almost resisting these people coming in and just did not want to work for these people at all they just wanted to live in what was theirs it was their right why should they be paying taxes so this led to them being punished basically. In 1920, Kenya became a colony under the East Africa Protectorate. The African children used to be taught by missionaries before the colonising happened. Uh, this was ended up uh, being replaced by Western schooling which was given to some African children and this is what they received. Those who did get education preferred to be represented by council and unofficial European uh, members such as missionaries rather than the Kenyan legislature. 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 Oh my god. Some words are like so hard for me to say. I am so sorry. I keep saying sorry. I'll stop apologising. Sorry. <laughs> uh, there was such a lack of direct African representation that they were really wanted within the colony so groups began to develop in order to put pressure on these people for their representation that they wanted and needed which didn't end up working as settler opposed this. In 1944 opposition eased as an African was put on legislative council making Kenya the first to actually do this. By 1951 there were about 8 on the council, but they felt still that their political rights were not being given to them. 
The Mau Uprising is quite an interesting thing that I was looking into. It was actually mentioned to me by my best friend Eleni. Hey! Um, and she was adamant that I needed to put this in. And to be honest, I really did. So the Mama Uprising was an anti-colonial group that came about from them being completely fed up with how they were being treated. There were squatters because of all the new taxes and eventually even they began to be taxed. Um, whilst the whites were barely taxed at all, the white colonists were barely taxed. They just wanted improvement in the conditions they endured and they also wanted liberation as they dealt with the systematic poverty but even with trying peaceful solutions they felt nothing was changing. The Mamao started as a group of students but eventually became more militant and they were gaining more power and becoming more violent around 1952 with stabbings and and shootings. They, they were killing a few people to be honest. The British government felt they themselves were so powerful and had enough men to suppress this at any time. That same year they declared a, declared a state of emergency um, so basically they did end up panicking. Mass arrests of Mawa people began happening, 6 billion bombs were actually dropped in total with most being in Nairobi due to its strong Mau Mau presence. Uh, one of the arrests that actually happened from the Mau Mau group was the future president Jomo Kenyatta who at the time was one of the Mau Mau's leaders. A lot of the Kikuyu people made up the Mau Mau uprising and arrests and captures of many eventually led them to be deported to camps. Yes, we are speaking concentration camps. They were cramped, crowded, barely, they barely ate, they barely drank and it was just disgusting. They lived in unsanitary conditions that led to many diseases being spread like wildflower as David S from the Cold War channel on YouTube states it. He also mentions on his episode how 50,000 people died with most actually being children who were born in the camps. These camps were basically war crimes amongst many more that the British committed. All these people wanted freedom and rights if you look at it properly. In 1954, Asian and African people along with the Europeans were eventually in the Kenya Legislative Council, Council finally giving more representation originally asked for. They were well, there was pressure always put on people that were higher up and had the power to actually release Kenyatta. The state of emergency then ends in December 1959 and Kenyatta was released in 1962 and within a year he was made first president of Kenya when Kenya gained their independence becoming a republic. Uh, so let's leave that on a happy note. I think that's a really good ending for the Kenyans like congratulations to them um and that my dudes and dudettes is the story of a lot of colonialism that took place very interesting stuff well to me at least <laughs> and maybe to some of you but to me at least uh, so I just want to actually point out 
a few channels and people that helped me I mentioned uh, a lot in this as well so first some YouTube channels um home team history as mentioned focuses a lot on black history um and it is was really good in helping me in this like I used a couple of his videos to like help quite kind of understand um and also to say some of the names I really did not want to offend by getting them wrong I tried I think I failed I'm sorry about that oops I said sorry but yeah I'm sorry about that but thank you um team history I hope you do not mind me mentioning you in this uh podcast um and the cold war channel as well that was so good for the Mau Mau uprising I researched so much on that one um especially David S who was the speaker in that just go check go check them out go check them out okay they're really good episodes they're really interesting um so we've got authors such as Chaniotis, Brodell, Jeffrey Parker in the Times, uh Taylor, Yo, uh Graham, Ezio Giddy, Canelian Attar for History Extra, McKendrick and Zinn. So those are the authors. Uh websites BBC, Britannica, History Extra extra south african history online imperial war museum black history month website and the british library a uh, special thanks to Haley hulbert i hope i'm saying your name right uh too who was kind enough to do some like fact checks for me and give me a few extra pieces of information for the ancient history section so thank you so much uh, she actually goes to my uni um and thanks to every one of you for listening i i know there's not many at the moment i'm hoping to get that up a little bit uh share thanks thanks share so thank you guys for listening until next time